Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Hey, welcome to Avant Life Church. If you're online, welcome. If you're in Squamish watching in, welcome. We have a great service to complete because it's already started. Uh, if, if, for those of you who are new, my name is Pastor Ben. Uh, I have the great privilege of leading this church. Um, and uh, I am married to the beautiful Emma, Pastor Emma. I know you, all of you are new right now watching online. You're like, there is miracles that happen in this world. Um, all you single men out there, church is the place to be. Do you know why? Because we get to rely on scriptures like, you know what? We serve a God that looks on the inside, not the outside. And then we can, we can live like that and hopefully someone will fall for that as well. Hey, we've got an announcement to, to make uh, before we get into the message today. And it's an exciting announcement for us as a church family. Uh, for those of you who were with us in December last year, way before COVID hit and everything shifted and changed, uh, we brought a Vision Sunday message all around that scripture verse in Isaiah 54 where he says to spread out your, your home uh, at an addition uh, to, to, to increase your house at no expense, like spend no expense. And we, we talked about the fact that God was increasing us as a house, not just numerically as if people start calling our art life home, but that we have a church planning mission, a part of us in our DNA, our dinner as a church. And we prayed and we discussed that whole understanding that he was calling us as a church to plant a campus out at Squamish. And that's exciting. And we've been journeying along that for a while now. Um, And like I said, COVID hit in the middle of uh, March. We shut everything down in person. We went online. Um, But God has still been at work with that vision which we declared at the end of last year over this year and over the course of the last six months, just through the, the, the divine hand of God and different paths coming together, uh, this week a church in Squamish, Squamish Community Church, voted to become an Avant Life Church campus. Um, <laughs> Uh, and we're really excited. Pastor Emma and I got to go down there and just meet the people and get to know them. It's a really fun experience to meet people and then become their pastors just like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. But it's exciting. Uh, and, and, you know, we know that God has brought those two pathways together for a reason, for a purpose. We know that God's got a, a, a great plan and mission for us as a church in Squamish, which is only 40 minutes away. Or if you're completely, you know, born with no integrity and break the speed limits, you can do it in about 20 minutes, right? Um, that's where God is, is multiplying us. As a church, now the the beautiful part of this is that we have these amazing people that now call Avant Life Church home. You know, we had this. I was speaking to one of uh, the ladies who has just been an incredible force to reckon with, keeping that church together. It has been in slow decline, right? And so there's different reasons for why they're they're pursuing to be a part of what God's doing here at Avant Life Church. But uh, you know, I was talking to her, and she started to speak. Uh, this was after the meeting. And she started talking about having to do things that, one, I don't think she should be doing because it was lifting heavy stuff. And I was like, you know what, we'll get someone uh, from North Van to come lift this for you. 
and she had this revelation. It was beautiful. She's like, I'm a part of a bigger family now. I'm a part of something that, that can actually help what I've been doing. Right? I don't have to be the person. It's called a snake, and I know it's not actually a snake that's going to bite you, uh, but it's, it's a cable that you run from the front to the back of the auditorium that you can plug all your instruments in. It doesn't sound like much until you roll it up, and then it weighs like a ton. Um, and I just I have this conversation with her, and what got me excited is these, these amazing people that once felt so alone and isolated and in decline, in a moment God has restored hope, he's restored a family, He's given them a vision. They can now believe again for their city, uh, which is exciting. Um, a part of the, the coming together is also the coming together of assets. Uh, it is a church that is 30 years old, and they have a building there um, that is just slightly smaller than this building. And so as a church, we get the great fun and excitement of coming together and renovating that and investing into that and preparing it for launch. Uh, which we have not set a date for yet. So all this stuff is exciting. And so what I can really tell you right now is that God is on the move not only in North Vancouver but in Squamish, and we have a responsibility as Avant Lifers to partner in prayer and begin to just sow into that, going, well, God, you're up to something here. Would you begin to bring lives? You know, there's the boom that's happening in Squamish. I don't know if you've been there recently. Um, from when I arrived three years ago to what it looks like now is vastly different. I can only imagine if you've lived here for most of your life, if you travel out to Squamish and look, like, look at what it looks like now, you can tell that God is positioning us as a church just as the right time to, re to reach what will be an increased population of young families uh, in that city, as well as make a difference to those who have called it home generationally. So that's exciting news. Am I wrong or am I right? Thank you. That's one of those questions you're not used to, right? Because you actually have to pick something. You can't just make a noise. Am I wrong or am I right? I spent a lot of time in the mission field when I was younger. I was born on the mission field. My parents were missionaries. We spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, and in Malaysia in particularly, they have this saying, and I find it quite funny. They'll be like, hey, can, you, uh, can I get a lift with you? They'll ask this, and then they'll end the sentence with can or cannot. Be like, can I get a lift with you? Can or cannot? And I'll be like, Can. And now, so when I, when I talk, I sort of actually structure my sentences to feel like I have to give you an option, but I've learned that's a bad thing. Don't give people options, just ask. Or sell them a really bad story. You guys ready? We're continuing our, our, our series on the resurrection, uh, our great hope. Last week we spoke and, and, and discussed a little bit about how there was a, a misalignment or, or uh, you know, we were, we were missing the picture a little bit when the Bible speaks about heaven and the afterlife. And we talked about what the ancient Greeks and Romans and Egyptians thought of the afterlife. And the reason we spoke about all this is that's where, uh, you know, our, our faith was birthed in that cradle of Mesopotamia uh, where all these influences existed. Uh, and so we discussed how Plato had an influence on Western Christian imagination, how Dante's work had an influence on how we consider hell and heaven, which has a very medieval construct if we were to listen completely to his works. And then we, we reflected back on what the Bible actually says about these things, that heaven is not a destination but a reality now, that it is a dimension that is unseen but has great power and authority. And because of Christ, that dimensions have been brought together, veil been torn. 
And today I thought it'd be really interesting to spend time just to discuss what was, what is resurrection. Like, this is going to be the most history-based sermon. If you don't like history, I apologize. I tried to add super emotional stuff in here so that we can all feel the bubbly bubblies, but it's difficult because we're talking about things dying. When we look at something like the resurrection of Jesus, as described in the Easter story, it's very important to allow our faith to be supported by evidential descriptions of truth, like empirical evidence of truth. Not simply, I felt or I feel this way, or my emotions make me think this way. See, one of the most guiding factors of a Christian is that our morality and our ethics of how we got there, our faith is determined by the living Word of God. It's not something that we came up with. It's something that he says is the principles that we should live by. Not that we would be condemned by them, but that we would find life and we'd find stability and we'd find satisfaction in the way he created us to live. And so when we talk about these things, when we we talk about the resurrection, sometimes we can discuss it in a very emotional way. We look at it completely, and, and, and don't get me wrong, it's important that we have this lens as well. We look at it as Jesus died on my behalf, and we go through this motion of death and resurrection from a place that that should have been me. And, and we emotionally begin to digest what took place here. Now, that's really important. The first part of that's important in the sense, yes, we do need to, in our emotions, in our mind, in who we are, our human being that we were created begin to reflect on the fact that our ransom was paid by Christ. And it's an amazing gift, you know, freely given to us, that salvation that we get through that sacrifice. But when we discuss the resurrection of Christ that takes place after, this is really important that we don't allow the resurrection to become emotive. Because the resurrection is actually empirical description of what took place. And I say that because often when we construct our faith, when we construct our beliefs on things, there's what we consider linchpins. There's foundational cornerstones that are very important. You might be able to shift all these other cosmetic things a part of the wall, but you can't shift the load-bearing part of the wall or it will collapse. Resurrection is a load-bearing pillar of the Christian faith. If we do not understand it empirically as evidence, then our faith is going to be very unstable. If we, if we attribute resurrection simply as something that Jesus attained to prove that he was God, then we've got a problem. Jesus already proved his divinity whilst on earth. His resurrection proved the coming age, the new creation. It actually said this guy wasn't just some friendly neighborhood wannabe Messiah who could turn water into wine. Nice party trick. This guy was the real deal. But I don't know if you've read the scriptures and we're going to go through this a little bit. It seems awfully weird that everyone around him has no idea that he's coming back to life. And it's not because they're like ignorant or dumb. These are educated people. It's because in our, our concept of resurrection versus their concept of resurrection, we lose the message. They don't lose it. We lose it. 
And it also feeds into next week's discussion on, on what Jesus' resurrection actually does for the new early church. And so let's take a quick look right now at what the ancient pagans thought of resurrection, their concept of resurrection. So most, and I'm going to use the word pagan, and, and essentially, you know, it sounds funny, right? Sounds like it's outdated language, but this is what historically they're known as, is ancient pagans. They were broadly divided into two groups when it came to the concept of resurrection. One followed after Homer's thoughts on this, which, they, you know, he essentially wrote in, his, in, in Greek mythology that there was a great desire, a great want to have a new body, but that it would never happen. And so... Plenty of, of ancient uh, uh, people that followed these thoughts were like, I, I want a new body, I want to be this, but it'll never happen. Actually, if you were to look at Greek mythology, Roman mythology, um, a lot of those, those Mesopotamian theologies that came around at that time, you see this pantheon of gods, right? And it's a pretty interesting picture that we see painted here. Um, and really what this is, and you look at it, is, is the description of humanity creating gods. And how do we know that? Because they create gods with human problems. So it's interesting that if you were to just simply look at the Greek pantheon of gods, that, that Zeus controls lightning and he, he is the, he's the leader of the gods. He's the king of the gods, right? But if you look at him, he suffers from this human condition you look at across all the gods, if you look at what they've got, really what's happened is, is that the Greek civilization has created superheroes. That's what they've done. They've created superheroes, but superheroes have human faults. They have human conditions. They have imperfections. This takes place right across this part of the world. Actually, it takes place right across the globe. What I find interesting, and this is what you need to focus in on, is that when it comes to, to the Jewish faith, which would then give birth to the Christian faith, our God had unhuman characteristics. He was all present. None of the gods in the pantheon were all present. They weren't everywhere at one time. That's why when you read their odysseys and what they got up to, they were constantly battling each other as humans would. They just had extra powers to do it. Our God is all-knowing. He knows all things, past, present, and what is to come. That is an a unhuman characteristic. That is not something we would go, oh, yep. That's why none of the gods are all-knowing at all times. He was all-powerful. This is something that none of the gods had through mythology. They all had their weaknesses. They all had their frailties. They might have had strength in particular areas, but they all had a, a, an Achilles. What did they have? Achilles heel. Our God doesn't have that. This is the picture that Homer paints, and that is we wish we could have what we projected onto our gods, but we never will. Therefore, what is that? And then the other part is those who align themselves with Plato's philosophy, which is that they didn't want to be resurrected because the disembodied body or disembodied, uh, disembodied soul was far better than living a carnal or fleshly life here on earth. These are the two, the two ancient pagan thoughts that were taking place around Palestine at the time. 
See, if we were to look at modern Western society right now, we have not escaped at all these two concepts. If anything, we simply try to achieve them this side of death. Think about it. There is a market out there. There is a, there is a full uh, uh, you know, money scheme that constantly markets to us that who we are physically, what we look like, is not good enough. There's a whole industry out there, and I'm not talking about the fact that, you know, we should uh, be, be fit and overall take care of our, our well-being. I'm talking about, I'm speaking about cosmetic augmentation of one's appearance. For what? So that we can have what we didn't have now. We try to bring resurrection, we try to bring that perfection to this side of eternity. It happens all, you look at Instagram. Put your hand up if you use a filter. Put your hand up. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> stand up. No, I'm <laughs> I won't get you to put your hand up, but I know for a fact that lots of people, no judgment, you put a filter on because it makes you look better. Not to deal with the light that might be causing a problem with your photo. You might say that to a friend or something, but we all know. You all know what I'm talking about. That's why we hold the camera here and not here. Then we look at Plato-style philosophy, and we haven't escaped that either, and that is, that is trying to render the feeling of not being in control powerless by willfully accepting the realities of death and decay and therefore celebrating the afterlife in an attempt to dispossess the power of death by rendering it on this side of eternity as substandard and almost pointless. Did you get all that? This is what I'm essentially saying. That we or we live our life as if what, what happens here means nothing anyway. That we, we may become a soul or a spirit, but if not, it doesn't matter. And we try to take control of what we really know is the fear that we don't have power over death and decay without Jesus, and therefore we try to live a life that gets as much into it now, a debaucherous life, one without consequence, because it's a substandard life on this side of eternity anyway. So we make the most of it. See, when the ancients spoke of resurrection whether to deny it as most pagans did or to affirm it as a lot of the Jews did, they were referring to a two-step narrative. A two-step narrative, and it's important that we get this, in which resurrection, meaning new bodily life, would be preceded by an interim period of bodily death. This is what resurrection meant to them. That not only did you have to die, you were dead for a period of time. And then you were resurrected into new bodily health. That's what re resurrection was, a physical coming to life of a body after death. Not a destination into eternity. And we spoke heavily about that last week in regards to heaven is not spoken as a destination. It's a reality here right now.
You know, once uh, you start looking through the chronicles of the church, it starts to make sense why some of the discussions took place. One of the major discussions were whether we would be starting our new bodies from existing bones or that God would make new ones, right? Because from the moment Jesus was resurrected, actually prior to that, the concept of resurrection was all about a physical coming to life. That's why all these early church discussions were about how does that actually happen? Because everybody back then knew about ghosts. They knew about spirits and visions and they'd found the mushrooms and had the hallucinations and so on and so forth. See, they were quite clear and that was resurrection meant physical coming to life. We read in Mark 16, 14 to 6, This is after John the Baptist has been killed by Herod. It says this, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. You could read that and just go, okay, superstitious. But there's three conversations taking place here. One, it's those who are proclaiming that John the Baptist has been resurrected, that Jesus is the resurrected form of John the Baptist. There's others are saying, well, I don't believe in resurrection, therefore it's Elijah. Why would they say it's Elijah? He never died, did he? So they, they, what they're doing there is that they're, they're essentially saying, well, obviously something supernatural is taking place, but we don't believe in the resurrection, so it has to be Elijah's come back because he never died. And then there's this whole understanding that he was a prophet of old because for 400 years before Jesus, the Lord hadn't spoken to Israel. 400 intertestamental period, they're saying, whoa, maybe God is breaking the drought of the prophets. 400 years is a long time. But Herod makes this statement. He says, no, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, we know that's not the truth. What this does point to us and what this does clarify to us is that he didn't think John the Baptist was a ghost. He thought he was resurrected in his full body. So resurrection for the ancients was a bodily resurrection. Furthermore, they didn't believe you could actually achieve it. They didn't think, they knew what resurrection was, they just didn't think you could do it. So they knew it was a bodily coming to life in a new form, but we don't, we don't actually think it can happen. This is interesting. So when Jesus goes to the cross and he dies and he's, he's, and he's risen from, the, from death, The early Christians that said Jesus had been risen from death, they knew they were saying that something had happened to him that hadn't happened to anybody else. They understood this. The people around them who were listening to them bear witness to this, understood the statement they were making wasn't a simple, oh, yep, he's back alive. Oh, cool, just like the last guy. This is a big statement. This is a statement they would base their life on. 
They also would set it in a way that no one expected it to happen. You've got to understand the early Christians didn't expect Jesus to be resurrected. That is, it was profoundly something that jump-started. It was a catalyst to their faith. What did the ancient Jewish people or cultures of the world think about resurrection? Some of the Jews agreed with ancient pagans in that they didn't believe in the embodied resurrection of anyone. If you read the scriptures, the Sadducees are famous for taking this position. When I was a kid, I used to get told this joke. You want to hear it? The Sadducees had no hope because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. (laughs) You're welcome. Heedle Thursday. Every night. (laughs) Because they're sad, you see. Most Jews of the day believed in an eventual resurrection. This was the common understanding. That is, God would look after the souls after death until the last day. God would give his people new bodies when he judged and remade the world. This explains exactly why Martha, when talking to Jesus in the conversation, assumes this is what Jesus is talking about in relation to Lazarus. If we look at John eleven twenty-three 23 to 24, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She is talking about a Jewish understanding of resurrection that had been spoken about. Both the ancient Jews and the ancient pagans understood that resurrection was completely about the physical embodiment coming to life. So we reach this final thought for today. And it's what did Jesus teach about the resurrection? Now you need to understand as followers that Jesus went about teaching a lot of different things during his short time of ministry here on earth. Now, as you study scripture, you need to realize when Jesus did his teachings, it was based around a few, uh, a few decisions that he would make depending on what they were discussing. If they were discussing a topic that needed to be redefined or corrected, he would teach heavily about it, which tells us that those who understood the law of God at the time and the principles, if they had strayed away from its actual meanings, Jesus spent a lot of time redefining them for them. And he would teach like this. Now, if the current status quo of what was being taught was accurate, Jesus would actually remain silent on the matter. Why? Because it didn't require him to re or realign it or redefine it or correct it. It was good as is. But then there's some topics he feels the need, though they're believed in, he still felt the need to reinforce. Not, not correct, just reinforce and, and in some ways slightly refine or redefine. Resurrection is one such case. He honestly hardly tries to redefine the notion of resurrection in relationship to the Jewish understanding. He does, not, he does speak on the matter, but it's brief and it's cryptic. And to the point, his friends and his closest followers don't have a clue what he's talking about. 
This is what I mentioned earlier. They don't understand, they're not picking up what he's talking about. This reminds me of people that I've led in my life before. As a pastor, we have the great privilege of leading people and discipling people, but I could, I'd, I'd be a millionaire for every time I gave someone sound, godly advice and it seemed, it seemed to them to be cryptic. But, hmm. So what you're saying is, and then they'll go on a tangent. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying, but you know what? You go that way. You figure it out. And this is... This is essentially what takes place. Jesus gives them brief, cryptic insight into what he's talking about in the resurrection. But it doesn't make sense to them. And I said before, it's not because they're daft or they're, they're, they're undereducated or they're not fully, you know, altogether about what he's talking about. It's because what they see as resurrection and what he's saying doesn't actually align in the way they thought it would. And we're going to discuss this a little bit. If we were to read... In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, 23 to 32, I'm going to read it for you. This is about the longest conversation Jesus has about the resurrection. It says this, The same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring from his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third and down to the seventh. After all of them, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. They're trying to trick Jesus here. It's a classic Sadducee playbook trick. It's like a riddle me this, Jesus. I love what Jesus says. <laughs> you are wrong. <laughs> oh, he could have just left it there. That's how I feel. Just say that to people. You're wrong. Because you, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they, neither, they neither, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not heard what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. It is funny because this is the scripture verse in which we get that whole understanding. It's a misunderstanding that when we die, we become angels and go to heaven. Um, and it's not exactly what he's saying here. He says, we become like angels. Not that we become angels, but like in the fact that our marriage on earth doesn't carry the same matrimony in the resurrection. <laughs> Don't know how I feel about that. You know, apart from this conversation in which we read, the only you know, your other real clear statements are made in the book of Matthew earlier on, in chapter 13, verse 43, where Jesus echoes what the prophet Daniel declared hundreds of years earlier, and that is uh, Daniel 12, 3, where it says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
Unlike the redefining of the kingdom of God and unlike the redefining of what the Messiahship would look like, Jesus doesn't really seem to have much to say about the topic of resurrection until he begins to talk about himself being killed and raised again in three days. See, the concept of resurrection as the disciples thought of it did not have an application for the coming Messiah. Though Jesus speaks of it, as it, and it seems obvious to us in hindsight as we read the Scripture, as we look at the story from a bigger picture view, for them, the last thing they imagined was that the kingdom bearer, the kingdom bringer, Jesus, the one who was uh, coming to be the, 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 the one that they believed in as the Messiah, they couldn't imagine that their Messiah was going to be killed by a foreign occupying force. It wouldn't have even crossed their mind. So when Jesus says, I'm going to die and be raised three days later, they're not thinking resurrection. There's no, oh, that's right. He has to die to save us. And then he'll rise again in three days. No worries. You know, the... One time Jesus actually slightly redefines the Jewish belief on resurrection by giving them clues to what needed to happen to him first. They have no idea what he's talking about. He tells them at the transfiguration not to say anything until what? Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. They literally discuss among themselves what rising from the dead must mean. Like they talk about this and they're not talking about resurrection. They're like, what, is, what does he mean rise from the dead? Is it, he's, he's the Messiah. He's not going to die. It's not like they've never heard of resurrection before. It's just more they never thought, as it seemed Jesus was saying, that it would happen to one person ahead of everyone else. This is where Jesus slightly redefines resurrection for them. He's saying to them, I'm going to go first and be resurrected. And in my resurrection, I begin the new age, new creation being formed, the great resurrection of all, the coming new heaven, the coming new earth. I am the catalyst. I am the bridge. I'm the bringer of this. I am what allows heaven to unleash all its power and authority through my name. I will go first. They're not picking this up because they believed they would all be resurrected at the same time at the end days. No one says, oh, that's fine, he's going to be back in a few days. In light of this understanding, it shows, of course, that the crucifixion of Jesus was the end of all their hopes. Now when you read scripture, it makes sense more than ever why they're so afraid, why they scatter. It's why they hide. Because Jesus has now died at the hands of an occupying force. We read in Luke 24, 21, this is on the road to Emmaus, the disciples say this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. They just described what happened to Jesus. 
They say here, we had hope, not we have hope. We had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now all of this makes contextual sense to us. The Roman cross already had a power and a powerful uh, message of symbolism prior to the new Christian meaning for it. And it simply meant this. Rome rules this place with complete brutality and authority. So when they saw Jesus hanging from the cross, it meant to them that his kingdom had not come. It meant to them that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and that hope was lost. It meant to them, each and every one of the disciples, that they had backed the wrong horse. This is what that moment meant to them. Even as Jesus tried to redefine their expectations prior to his crucifixion, after his crucifixion, all hope is lost and their resolve crumbles. What I love about studying through the Bible, it becomes constantly inescapable of how we are not that different from the disciples. We really aren't that different to those that are projected through the scripture. Yeah, we have different technology and all that, but I love the fact that human condition is somehow ageless. (laughs) And that their responses make sense to me more than ever when I realize that they didn't understand the resurrection. And next week we're going to talk about when Jesus was resurrected, why this was such a big deal and an unexpected outcome. And we're going to discuss how that is a defining reason that makes the Christian faith so powerful. What I love about this is that the disciples, just like us, they have a desired godly outcome that they foresee, expectations. Ever had godly expectations that he's going to do something in your life? It doesn't work out the way you thought it was working out and then you do two things. You think you did something wrong. Or you think the enemy is against you? Now, those could be true. (laughs) That could be a reality. But often, and I was talking to some of our interns last night, do you know when you stay the path, when you remain committed, when you believe what Christ has said to you and what the Scriptures have said to you to be true, if you're to live your life in that safety net of being obedient, when something goes wrong in your life, you have a complete reassurance that it's not you and that you're not in trouble and that all of a sudden all these promises and covenants that were given to us actually carry weight ever claim something over something that you yourself caused the problem for? The amount of Christians that I hear complaining about their season when it was them who seeded the crop that they're harvesting today months and years ago with their behaviour, their lack of discipline, the way they didn't show grace or love and they're like, oh, the enemy's against me and they're giving glory to the devil when he hasn't done anything. He's just allowed you in your pride. He's just allowed you in your want to control. He's allowed you in your selfishness to lay a crop that he knows is only going to bring you pain and hurt. See, resurrection, I said, is a pillar because resurrection not only is physical for us as believers, but it's spiritual as well. See, the Bible says that, that the whole concept of resurrection has to 
involves something dying for an, an interim period of time than coming back to life. When we sinned against God in the garden, things died. The curse came upon us. When Jesus Christ resurrected, when he came back to life, he started the resurrection in the physical, but he also resurrected the spiritual in us. The spirit man, the spirit woman. And then we're, we're taught throughout Scripture that we're to live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. We're to live in what is an eternal perspective, not a limited earthly perspective. We're to use our perspective of heaven to have dominion over our earthly issues here on earth. But what actually happens is we take our earthly desires, we take our earthly wants, and we try to fit them in to the resurrection narrative. And when it doesn't happen... We're having prayer meetings. We're putting Hillsong on. On loop. I'm going to find every minor key song and I'm going to lament. Don't get me wrong, these are great things. But at some point you need to start looking at the empirical evidence. The early Christian, and we're going to go back into worship, simply knew this is that if Jesus Christ did rise from the grave and I choose to partner in that, I don't do it emotionally, I do it through truth and discipline. They made a decisive choice to believe that it took place, that it was real, and that because of that, and this is what I love and we'll talk about it next week, do you know when the apostles sit down to write the New Testament, they themselves have to go back into the old scripture to understand exactly what the resurrection of Christ meant so that when they wrote the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit, they actually came from a position of ignorance first. And so if you read their writing like that, you begin to see an excitement in them as they themselves are having this revelation through God and they're the ones helping write it. Because why? Like I said, the resurrection was unexpected. That no one thought Jesus was going to come alive again. So when he turned up in the garden, when he turned up walking on the road, when he walked through a door and Thomas was like, I should have believed the first time. No one expected this. When the women bear, bear witness that Jesus is risen, one, no one believes him because they're a woman and we'll talk about that next week. But two, Ain't nobody expecting a resurrection of a bodily Christ. But he's same, same, but different. And we're going to talk about that next week. I'm going to leave it there. You go to bed tonight with the same, same, but different. Would you stand with me this today? And we're going to worship a little bit. I don't know. It's a weird message. I told you it's going to be weird to worship to this stuff. But if you're a believer in a house... You really need to begin to understand that, that there's no delineation between what you do in your heart and your mind and your physical body. Jesus says if you commit adultery, you lust after a woman in your heart, after your mind, you committed it in the flesh. It makes it slightly more difficult through the auspice of grace and the understanding that we have grace now. It sounds like we have license, but actually we have responsibility but he says, I'll empower you to get through this. And so in all of this, as we worship, you need to understand that he's resurrecting the physical parts of your life. So your, 
your failed dreams that mightn't have come to pass that you know were given to you from God. He wants to resurrect them. He wants to, through grace, give you that chance to achieve it. Maybe you have a friendship that has broken down and you've been wanting to see it restored for a while in the physical realms he's resurrecting. Maybe it's your marriage right now that he needs to resurrect. Maybe you've got a sickness in your body that he needs to begin to heal. As we worship tonight, as we worship here today, would we just simply take the posture of, hey, you are a resurrected king. You're still alive and at work in our life and that we're all being resurrected in you. And it's because of resurrection that we have our great hope tonight. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.